0: Fifty-three. We're in a series of the Book of Psalms, and today is Psalm fifty-three. And I'm thrilled to be here with you. We're going to read this and then uh, and pray together. <clears throat> Let me say this just at the outset. You know, I spent a lot of my time. In, in the academy, in the university, and in seminaries, and in teaching. And usually, very first thing at the beginning of a course, there are a lot of students in the room who don't know me from Adam's house cat. And, you know, at that age, they're all questioning who is this person, and what do they believe, and that kind of thing. And so I would, at the very outset, just give them some of the basic things of what I believe so that they would know who they were sitting in front of and I realize that I'm looking around the room and most of you I recognize and and know but then again there are some new faces as well so allow me to say this before we read the text and that is simply a statement of faith by saying that I believe in God the Father, and I believe in Christ the Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Our God is three in one. I believe in the resurrection, that he will rise again, for I believe in the name of Jesus. And I find this in the inerrant, infallible, verbal, and plenarily inspired, totally sufficient and authoritative word of God. And so as we break open Psalm 53, we're going to see some people who don't hold to these same truths. Do you have your word? Whether it's in the digital form or in the paper form, and what everybody is bringing, I hope that you do. Psalm 53, to the choir master, according to the Mahalath, a mascal of David. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one have those who work evil no knowledge who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the God there they are in great terror where there is no terror for God scatters the bones of him who encamps against you you put them to shame for God has rejected them Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When God restores the fortunes of His people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me, would you? Lord, I thank You for Your grace to give us Your word, to reveal Yourself to us. And here we see these people who say that You don't exist. That brings a conviction to my heart when I act in such a way that someone around me might believe that I don't believe you exist. So I pray bring healing. Thank you for granting repentance and that you call your word to mind as we meditate on it both day and night. Now I pray break it open to us and give us that rejoicing Help us to be glad that we know you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, again, if, uh, if you don't know me, um, now I am the curator of a museum. It's a historic museum, it's got a lot of different kinds of artifacts in it. We have some artifacts that are quite rare that are not to be seen in any other place in the the world, literally. We only have about half a dozen of that kind of quality. But then again, we have other artifacts that are so rare that they're in very few places, even like the Smithsonian Institute. So obviously they're, they're precious, they're very costly. And uh, if you ever come and visit, and I'd love for you to do that, we're out Highway 80, which is Southern Boulevard, to go way out there until you turn right onto Goa Way. That's right, that's the name of our road. It's Goa, G-O-A, Way. And when you turn on to Goa Way, as you're driving up that little road that only two people live on, there's a series of signs along the way. It, the, this opening line of Psalm 53 reminded me of those signs when it says, The fool says in his heart, There is no God, because these signs are meant to be humorous. Now, I realize there's some sensitivities in the room that may not think they're all that humorous, but such is my boss's sense of humor. For instance, one sign uh, uh, along this way says, That this facility is guarded by a shotgun three nights a week you guess which nights (laughs) yeah Uh, another one says just plainly not maybe as humorous but true nothing inside is worth dying for Uh, one of my favorites and there's a bunch of them I can't read them all this may be my favorite right here it says due to the high price of ammunition no warning shots will be offered Now I get it in our culture and we're talking an awful lot about guns and uh, I'm not meaning to be offensive in any way. But I am trying to say by way of illustration, if you come down, go away intending to do harm or any kind of injustice, you're a fool. (laughs) Because anybody who's ever visited our museum knows that we have all the weapons of the American wars and they all work so anybody who comes to do any harm well according to what I'm reading here is a fool they're out of bounds now here's what I I want to do during our time together here in the next few minutes first of all I want to examine Psalm 53 And then I want to apply that. I want to examine it in its context, the text itself, verse by verse. And then I want to apply that to us. I want to make sure that we've got that interpretation down. But the third thing, and really on my heart today, is to respond to the text within our cultural setting. I want to respond to it. And and here's a little bit of a twist in the way that I would like to respond to it. It is to address this almost to anyone who would have questions about whether there is a God. You might be here, maybe you've been a Christian a long time, and doubts have come in. Listen, I do not know any serious-minded Christian who has been a Christian for any length of time who hasn't got questions, who at some time in their life hasn't had some serious doubts and so that's a very legitimate, I know we've got this old phrase, well, we're not to question God. Well, that would have to be put in its proper context and understood. That, that means like, you know, questioning him to the extent of saying to him, I don't believe in you. No, that's not what I'm talking about here. But I am saying that we all have had questions and challenges and we need good answers for that. And so I want to get to that place, uh, thirdly, in our time together. Now, let's just make sure we're clear on what a fool is. What is a fool? A fool is a person who thinks or acts contrary to what they believe to be is true. A person who thinks or acts in such a way as to be contrary to what they believe to be true. Now, you may not like that particular definition, You're you're sitting there saying, well, no, wait a minute. I know some people who have done some foolish things, but they were unaware. Well, just think about that for just a second. The reason you are saying that that person has done some foolish things, even though they were unaware, is because you are aware. I lost you. I know. you. Okay, how about this? I don't watch horror pictures. I don't like horror pictures. I just never liked it. (laughs) I I prefer not being scared. I don't even like roller coasters. I mean, you know, being scared is no fun to me but you've watched a movie and there that person is on the, that star or whatever that character in that movie and they're, they're about to go down in the basement and you're saying oh no don't go down in the basement that's where the aliens are or that's where the boogeyman is or that. oh don't oh but they're going down the st- you fool you're going down the stairs I can't believe you're doing that you see well you're going to tell me that they're unaware the aliens are down there But the reason you're doing it is because you're aware that they're down there, you see. So a fool is a person who thinks or acts contrary to what they know to be true. Now, if my definition holds up, and I think that it does in Psalm 53, I read it again. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. But I tell you this, that fool knows that there's a God. But he's keeping it to himself. He's hiding it in his heart. This is not a theoretical, philosophical position. This is a practical way of life. The fool says in his heart that there is no God. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. He knows in his heart that there's a God, but he says in that same heart, almost as if for self-justification, there's no God. And he does what is pleasing. It's interesting that Psalm 53 is almost a verbatim repetition of Psalm 14. Of Psalm 14. And... um, In reading, uh, for instance, Romans chapter 3. Stay with me for just a second. If I were to fly over here to to Romans chapter 3, I would read such verses um, like this. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands in chapter 3 of the letter to the Romans. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is a sin of open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is Romans 3. But guess what he's already said back in Romans 1? After telling them that God has allowed them to go off into their own sin three times, over and over and go. God turned them over, God turned them over, God turned them over. And then in Romans one twenty one, one twenty one, this is what it says here. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Though they knew God, they didn't honor him as God. Now, why are you bringing this up? Well, as I was reading through chapter 3, you can see a great deal uh, that the Apostle Paul is, is, is actually rehearsing, he's writing over again exactly what are in these Psalms 14 and 53. He's repeating it he's saying that there's no one righteous they don't fear God but before he said that he said they knew God but they did not honor him as God and so I think that it makes it very plain and clear here that they have knowledge of God but they say in their heart there is no God now wait a minute You look at this and you say, You mean to tell me that there are people here in this passage who know that they're God, but in hypocritical fashion saying in their heart there is no God, and in doing so they are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. Again, I repeat, they're not thinking this is some theoretical philosophy. How are they proving there's no God? By doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. It's the way of their life. Verse 2. God looks down from heaven on children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. Now, just think about that. I mean, I do. It's one of the very first actually in heart things that i learned when i became a christian what do you mean in heart well what i mean by that is, is i didn't read it anywhere and to my knowledge i hadn't had had anybody teach me uh now i had a mother who said hey watch what you do tonight god sees you and maybe that stuck but i knew early on as a christian you know what i don't want to go there anymore and i don't want to do that anymore and the reason was that god sees but when i study the word of god do you know god doesn't look down from heaven very often i mean in the text i understand that you you're thinking god's on his throne and he knows everything and that's true but when the text actually says god saw this or god sees this not very many times in the bible Uh, Genesis chapter 6, the Bible says that God looked down on the earth and you know what he saw? He saw the corruption of man and it was complete and it was exhaustive. There was nothing on man's heart except for evil continually. Uh, He also said, um, he said to Noah when he got off the ark, I put the bow in the sky and when I look upon that, that's what God said, when I look upon that, I'll remember the covenant that I have with you. Uh, Again, um, Moses. Moses turned aside to the burning bush. Remember that story? And the Bible says, and when God saw Moses turn aside, he came down and he met with him. But believe it or not, you will not find very many other passages in all of Scripture that describes God seeing from heaven, looking down. But he's looking down. Now this is a big word for me, anthropomorphism. That is giving God man-like characteristics, qualities. But here we are in poetry, we're in a song. And so David, the psalmist, is writing to the choir master, and he says, I want you to know that God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if anyone who's understand, who seek after God, as if he's, he's questioning his curiosity. Now be it known, God knows. It's a, it's a poetic, rhetorical device that he's looking at. But he wants the hearers to understand that. They're not trying to say, oh, the question of God. He wants the people who are reading or listening to the psalm to say, listen, God's watching. He's looking, and he's looking for somebody, and he's not finding anybody. Verse 3, they have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one, as if to continually pile on and continue to, to repeat it. But I want you to notice something at the outset of this verse. They've fallen away. They've fallen away. Now, in order to fall away, the implication is, is at one point they were whatever in is, whether on it means. They were in the fellowship. But now they have fallen away. And so therefore, once again, I would remind you, I believe that these fools actually do know that there is a God. But the important point of this particular verse here in verse 3 is the exhaustive nature of it. You might say three, maybe even four times in just this short verse. The writer is emphasizing how exhaustive this is. They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. That's the emphasis on the exhaust of nature. Once again, he says these people are corrupt, just like in verse 1. But this corrupt is a little bit different. It's a different Hebrew word. And just let me say that this corrupt is kind of like, okay, you're not going to like this. But have you ever gone into the refrigerator and and grabbed a little bit of milk and poured it out there on the glass or whatever, or worse yet, in the cereal? And then, and then you take a bite of that cereal and it's like, oh, dear. how long has this milk been in there? It has what? It has soured. It has gone bad. That's this corrupt. This is soured. And I wonder, doesn't say it, so be careful when you extend scripture. But I wonder in whose mouth it has soured. I believe maybe God's. These people have become corrupt. Verse 4. Have those who work evil no knowledge, who eat up my people as they eat bread, and do not call upon God? If my definition of a fool actually stands, I would say to you that this is a rhetorical question. Have they no knowledge? Yes, they do. Yes, they do. They have knowledge of God, and yet they continue acting in a way that demonstrates to all those people around. I I remember I was a young lad. I was going to the Bible college. I was in the First Baptist Church of of, uh, Indian Town. Now, you don't know where Indian Town is, but I know where Indian Town is. It's a little town on the shore of Lake Okeechobee. And... um, and I was there and, and I was carrying my Bible, I was going into church and I was carrying my Bible like this. Now, let me tell you, there's only one kind of person that carries a Bible like this. That's a preacher. You know, If you're ever wondering whether that guy's a preacher, watch how he carries his Bible. Only preachers carry their Bible like that. And one of the deacons of the First Baptist Church of Indiana came up, came up to me and I was carrying my Bible. He says, "I'll bet you're a preacher." Now, I bring that up because I'm curious. You ever had anybody come up to you and ask you, are you a Christian? You know, I perceive this, I perceive that. Are you easily identifiable as a Christian? Oh, well, we pray at home over the meal, but when we're out, we kind of just keep it down on the farm. Let's not get radical. Okay, I'm teasing you. Furthermore, continuing on in the text there they are in great terror where there is no terror now wait a minute that's a little tongue twisting kind of thing going on there they're in terror where there is no terror now here's the way I read this verse there they're in terror where's there there is outside of the protective umbrella of knowing and acting like there is a God They're outside that protection. And there is terror. I bring that up because here's one of the small differences between Psalm 53 and Psalm 14. In Psalm 14, they say that they are in great terror because God is for the righteous. The indication is there, they're in great terror. Because where God is, is not there. God's with the righteous so you're not where God is and that's a very very dangerous place to be but secondly it says there that they're they're in terror where there is no terror they're actually in a bad place but they're saying eh I mean they're they're okay they're like I was before I knew the Lord oh well can you imagine somebody saying, hey, I'm going to hell and going to have a good time on the way. Do you ever hear anybody say that? Well, I've said it. Now, I haven't said it as a Christian, but I said it as an unbeliever. The arrogance, the arrogance of it. These people are in a place where there's terror, where there's no terror in their heart. They're outside the protection of God. For God scatters the bones of him who encamps against you. You put them to shame, for God has rejected them. Again, poetry sometimes is a little bit challenging to unpack. For God scatters the bones of him who encamps, that's military language, against you. You see, up to this point in the psalm, it's all been about they, 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 they. they. When we get to the latter part of verse 4, God finally says, my people. And so now he's using first person, my. But here, for the very first time, he's using the second person. And he's saying that they are encamping against you. You put them to shame, for God has rejected them. Now that's tough. I don't I had to think about that and sort that out for just a little bit. Because on face value, at first, stay with me, it almost looks unchristian. It almost looks unchristian-like. You put them to shame for God has rejected them. One thing you might say is, is that there's an implication there that God has accepted you, but he's rejected them. But once again, our sensitivities in this 21st century, I think that's where we are, sometimes it's hard at my age to remember what century we're in yeah month day of the week forget century. our sensitivities in north america in the 21st century would say now wait a minute that doesn't sound like the god of love that doesn't sound like the god i know christians listen here for just a second the glory of god the holiness of god is absolutely incomplete, if not completely neglected or negated if there is no judgment. There is coming a day of judgment and he will separate the wolves from the sheep. And there is judgment coming when every deed done in the flesh will be given an account for. And while that Grades against some of our sensitivities. He says here that you put them to shame because he accepts you. And he will have a dividing line. Last verse. Oh, that, oh, that, look, oh, that's, you know what he does right here? I love what he does here. And he does this in many, if not almost all of the prophets. You know, when you think about a prophetic word, you're thinking about a harsh word, a word that come some bony-fingered guy comes and gets in your face and says, thus saith the Lord, and kind of bad news, bad news, bad news, bad news, kind of like Amos. I remember Amos when I read Psalm 53 because Amos is the guy who uses the picture of the big round barrel of apples, and he shows them the barrel of apples, and he says, All the apples in the barrel are rotten. That's you, Israel. So he brings that kind of harsh, harsh word. But Amos, like so many of the other prophets, and like Psalm 53, so like it's bad word. It's kind of like a ski slope or a ski jump, you know? Bad word, bad word, bad word, bad word. And then right at the very end, a little little turn upwards. Look at verse 6. Look at verse 6. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when God restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. God is going to do it. The hope that you and I have for people who know that there is a God, it's, it's future. It's eschatological. We look And we say that we will rejoice. Why do we rejoice? Because this world is not all that there is. And one day God will be completely vindicated. And he will bring rejoicing. And he will bring gladness. Well, where's the application of this? Well, it's pretty obvious. These people are not described as people who have no knowledge. But are people who have knowledge but whose lives don't comport they're not in concert with what they know they're people who somehow have drifted away you see that they've fallen they used to know but now they don't know they've drifted away now some years ago I gave you this illustration but because you don't remember last week let alone years ago I'm going to do it again either that or because I'm almost 69 years old and I get to do things like that I, uh, I used to attend a New Orleans seminary, New Orleans, Louisiana, and I would carpool about an hour and a half or so with another guy. And this guy used to have a job uh, cleaning out the inside of tankers on the Mississippi River. You know, those big barges, the big tankers. He actually had a job of, when it was empty, going down inside them and cleaning them out. But one thing that they did before he would go down in there is that they would set up a transit a tran you know you've you've been out watching them survey for highways and that sort of thing a uh, three prong tripod thing camera on the top like that crosshairs on it that's a transit and they can look through and make sure things are aligned well, they would take a transit and they would put it on the deck of the barge and then they'd point the transit, they'd point it at, at something on the land. And that way they could tell right to the, the finest point when if that big barge, that tanker began to, to, to drift. Because it's very difficult when you're at sea to tell. You get waves hitting all the time if you've ever been out on a boat it's difficult. Are we, are, are, are. I thought we threw out the anchor are we drifting? it's hard to tell folks when I read this and a digression here sometimes when I read the stories of pastors who used to pastor this church and now they've gone off on this direction pastors who used to pastor this and have run off with this done this, done that and I think, I think to myself, and Sandy and I talk about it, how is this possible that this person has, has gone in such an immoral direction after being a pastor? And, 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 by, and by the way, not just pastors, I doubt there's anybody in this room right now who's going to wake up tomorrow and say, you know what, I've decided there's no God. I don't really think that that's going to happen. I don't think there's anybody in the room who is here on Father's Day, hearing the word of God, singing praise, is going to wake up instantly tomorrow and say there is no God. But I do know that we're all in danger of drifting. All of us. That's what the text says. All of us are in danger of that drifting away. Today they use a big word for it. You know, there was a time when, uh, uh, yeah, as old as I am, people would complain about You know, I sent my, my young person, my gr- high school graduate, off to college, off to the state university. And they come back spouting all this dribble and talking about this. And, you know, whether there is a God or there's not a God or whatever, the kinds of things like that. And we, oh, you know, I'm not sending them back to that. You know, we talk like that. wasn't good talk but we talked like that but today they've got a sophisticated word for it it's called deconstruction today you might hear the word deconstruction people who once embraced all the things of God of who God is in their lives loved this word today not so much now you know they come home are they a Christian are they not a Christian sometimes that's difficult to tell But still, the application of this psalm is still very much in place. They have fallen. Maybe they didn't just fall off a cliff instantly, but they have drifted. They have moved away from the God that they love. Now, the application is simply this. And I really want you to get this. Now, the reason that I'm emphasizing the fact that I want you to get this is because it's so simplistic, it may be overlooked. Sometimes the simple things get overlooked. But in this world today, there is one and only one problem. In this world today, when you and I look at the TV, and you've noticed I have not used a lot of current... Illustrations of what's on the headline news, what's on the headlines of the newspaper. I haven't talked about the cultural chaos that's going on in America today. You want to know why? Because I can't. We have come to the place of such moral degradation that I cannot even speak to you about what's reported on the evening news. In mixed company, certainly with young people around, We are so corrupt that we can't even speak about it. But to that corruption, I reiterate, there is only one problem. There is one and only one problem. And that problem is lostness. They're lost. They're without Christ. And there is one and only one solution. And that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news that God has paid a price for you and for me. He died on the cross to satisfy his own wrath. Something that nobody in this room could do. But by grace he offers to you the gift of faith. That if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ you will be saved. You will be a part of those that he protects not outside his umbrella of those who he rejects it is the plain text that is here there is one problem it's lostness and it's one solution and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ oh well I knew that I told you it was simple you're sitting there saying well he's just he's just saying what preachers say and I'm saying to you, in a world that is very evident, that they're screaming in your face, there is no God. There's only one answer for you. They're lost and they need the Lord Jesus. Now, that's what I believe is coming out. That's the only place, as the end of it says, where there'll be rejoicing and gladness. But now I want to do something here, just very quickly, in the next few moments together because I wanna respond to this. That's the text, that's the application within the text. But now I wanna respond to it in a world in which I live. So what is my response to the text? Well, I'm going to use, this is dangerous, but I'm going to use the outline that Tim Keller uses in a discussion that he has with the folks at Google. That's right, Tim Keller, pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Manhattan, was invited to speak to the crowd at Google, the employees at Google. Can you imagine? You know, into the devil's den, so to speak, maybe. I don't, I don't know. But he used an outline. He said, I want to talk to you. today," And the way he talks, I just love it, actually, because he's talking to a room that he believes are unbelievers. And you say, well, wait a minute, pastor, preacher. Why are you, you know, we're a room full of believers. Well, I want to use the same outline because it brought up in my mind certain things that are helpful and i hope that they'll be helpful to you so the outline is simply this he gave an existential response he gave a rational response and he gave a cultural or social response to why he believes there is a god and i want to follow that outline i want to use these three things to say to you why i believe that there is a god And first of all, it's the existential. That's a big word for me and I'm not a philosopher, but what is existential? Well, it just simply means that it exists. You know, how do you know it exists? Well, I just believe it exists. I believe it in my heart. I believe that there is. Now, there was a time in my preaching when I said, well, you know, I don't think that you can go on your feelings alone. Uh, I I, I don't think that you can just say, well, that's the way things are and and leave it at that. Why do I believe that there is a God? Because I I just feel like there's a God. I feel like there's a God. Now, there's a time when I would have said to you, that's pretty weak. Uh, There was a time when we used to sing that hymn, you know, he lives, he lives, salvation to impart. You ask me how I know he lives? He lives within my heart. I used to use that hymn as a as a a bad course of action a bad way to think you know why because Hindus do the same thing Muslims do the same thing world religions all of you ask them why they well i believe in my, they do incredible crazy dangerous things because they believe in their heart and and so i would say to you oh well uh wait a minute what does the word of god say the word of god I, I can't go on i think of the apostle paul in writing i am confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will complete it unto the day of jesus christ he believes in his heart he's confident and just because All the other world religions think the same thing doesn't mean they get to rob that away from me. I believe it because I feel like I want to believe it. Now, I will tell you, theologically, the reason that's so is because God has granted me repentance, has given me his Holy Spirit, has regenerated my heart, and allowed me to do that. But it does not negate, existentially, I want to say to you, that I want to believe. And I would love to take the afternoon to talk to you about the fact that I believe you want to believe too. Because every person in this room wants to be happy. Every person in this room wants to experience joy. And every every opportunity, every possibility, every attempt at finding eternal joy in any other place always fails. There isn't a person in the room, can't tell me otherwise. There isn't a person on the planet. I believe in your heart you, well, I'd love to say want to know God, But the reason I would say that you want to know God is because you're not a fool. Secondly, rationally, I believe that there is God. Rationally. Now, one of the reasons that I rationally believe that there is a God is because it takes a great deal more faith to believe that there's not a God. These people who will tell you that this is the way it was created or this is how it was done, I promise you if we have time to pursue those conversations, we are ultimately going to get to the place where they have to admit, well, that's just what I believe. In other words, we're going to get to a place where by faith, oh, they won't say it that way, but by faith, they believe what they believe by faith because they can't prove it oh that Bible thing of yours that's cyclical reasoning you say you believe in God because the Bible says you believe in God and the Bible says that you believe in God because the Bible says you believe in God and around and around we go and oh I say to you any ultimate claim on truth is also cyclical you believe in your Big Bang, you believe in that, why? Well, I've got nothing else, and I can explain to you how the orbit of the Earth and everything is going around, we're gonna pursue it back until I say, where'd that come from, and where'd that come from, and where'd that come from, where'd that come from, and where that, that, that came from, and we know what the end of the trail is. is well, I, I just believe it. Oh, you just believe it. So let me get this straight, you just believe it, Because it's there, and it's there because you believe it. You've just used cyclical reasoning to prove the ultimate truth to yourself. And furthermore, I want to say something else about this rational business. Now you all, if you've heard me preach before, you know I love the covenant of redemption. Probably too much, I don't know. But the covenant of redemption says that the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit have grouped up in eternity past. And the covenant of redemption says this, that the Father says, I'll do this, 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 this. And the Son says, I'll do this, this, this. No, God, and God said, by my grace and love that I've had for all of eternity, I need need to create, I need to make, we need to provide a remedy for that. And so he sent his Son, who died on that cross, to pay the penalty for me, for you, that we couldn't pay. He paid it for us that if we believe repent of our sins and cling to him that we might have that joy and love and kind of relationship can somebody explain to me the irrationality of that can you do that uh, that's totally irrational no it's not rational irrational it makes sense it makes perfect logical sense that God a loving God would do that it's not irrational but finally I would say to you, I believe that there's a God culturally or socially. I'm in fellowship with like-minded people. Now, if you've never faced hard times, which is everybody in the room, if you've never faced hard times, you've never been down, I mean, you've never seen the dark hole of challenge, then you won't understand how we need each other. But I'm in fellowship with life. You want to know why I believe there is a God? Part of that reason is you. Part of that reason is each one of you. Part of that reason is found in Hebrews 11 that there's a great cloud of witnesses that have gone on before. That we have a fellowship, a uniting together that believes that there is a God. And, and that, that belief comes with some responsibilities, according to Hebrews 10:24. Consider this. Consider stirring up one another's faith in love and good works. Stir it up. I might add, although that text doesn't say it, I might add, listen, Christian. Listen, person who believes that there is a God. Get on the business of stirring up one another's love and good works, lest we all fall away, lest we all drift. Culturally, socially, I believe that there is a God because I am bound together with you. I love that. Come thou fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing. Call for songs of loudest praise. O to grace. I hope you haven't sung this song and not really good. O to grace. How great a debtor. Daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter. Bind my wandering heart. To thee. Prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Folks, there's not a person in here whose heart is not prone to wander. But I believe this. I believe that there is a God. I believe that there's a God because by his grace he's put it in my heart. I believe that there is a God because I believe it makes sense that there's a God. And I believe that there's a God because of you. Us together. Father, I pray that you would put this in our heart. That We would so live in such a way that we testify that there is a God, that we be not foolish, but that our conduct would just speak volumes to those around us, as well as our words, that you indeed exist, that you indeed do love that you are a rational God who saves his people and that you save us together for your glory. In Jesus' name.